Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're continuing on with Ruby Under a Microscope by Pat Shaughnessy. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Ruby compiles a simple script and how it compiles a call to a block. And today we're going to finish off chapter two, which looks at something called the local table. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet with us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. So how did you find the reading? So I think that this particular section of the reading, the, the local table, has been the trickiest bit so far of the book for me to get my head around and to really understand what was going on. However, because of, you know, we interviewed Pat last week and um, we split up a recording a couple of weeks ago, it's meant that I found myself reviewing this particular reading like five or six times. And it's only been on the last like go over that some things really clicked into place. And I realized that it wasn't as complicated as I thought. And that revelation just felt so amazing. I was so excited. But, but then I was also like, huh, it took me five or six times though to get there. Mm. And it just goes to show mm-hmm. how how many times you someone might need to go over something to really learn it you know yeah um how about you yeah i think i i read this section twice Mm -hmm. and the first time i was like i have no idea what's going on and the second time i was like i think i know what's going on um and when i when i got near the end when and that's the thing too like you know he he starts off with a really simple example and i'm like cool nailed it totally understand mm-hmm. and then we go through slightly more complex examples and by the last example which is the more the most complicated one i'm like i don't really think i understand what's mm-hmm. going on um that's when i remembered our conversation i think it was from last mm-hmm. week where we talked about how you and i really want to dig deep and understand mm-hmm. every single part of everything and near the end i said maybe you're not supposed to understand every yeah. single like maybe this is more of like just a high level overview and just to kind of introduce you to this world and we're not supposed to understand every line of code so i don't know if that's actually true or not but once i accepted and told myself that it was okay not to understand everything i felt better about it but yeah i definitely found i i really wanted to to really get it in a way that didn't end up happening for me yeah that's exactly where I got to yeah a couple of weeks ago where I I accepted that I wasn't going to understand everything and it's so liberating Mm -hmm. because it even happened when I was reading (laughs) this I was like oh this bit now suddenly sticks into place but I still don't get this bit and I was like Nadia take what you got you've got a really cool little chunk just take that and move on Mm -hmm. yeah and also because with this book a lot of the things that aren't explained you know right now end up being explained just a couple pages later and I've started to kind of recognize that pattern and so I said to myself you know maybe we'll clear this up you know in chapter three maybe we'll clear this up near the end so just kind of allowing time and allowing space for it to be explained at a later point uh, was really helpful cool so shall we dig into the local table yeah let's do it So we talked previously about this thing called the AST, which stands for Abstract Syntax Tree. And uh, what we find is that once Ruby's compiler runs, the information is copied out of that Abstract Syntax Tree and into something totally different called the local table. And this is something that we've seen earlier as well. If we go back to some of the earlier figures, um, we've seen it previously in other figures like 211, 212, 213, where when we talk about that node and we've talked about like node scope, node call, node f call, uh, in that little node box graphic, there's something that says table and there's something that says arcs. And sometimes they will be empty, like in figure 211, for example, it says table colon none and then args colon none. 
But then when we look at 213, figure 213, and this is when we're exploring the 10 times do n puts n end, we're looking at that, uh, that example, and we see what those nodes look like. We see that there's node scope, and then we have table n, args 1. And so in the past, we've seen and we've come across this idea of, uh, of the local table before, but we've never really talked about it, and which kind of goes to the point I had in the very beginning, where even if every detail isn't explained, at some point, it shall reveal itself. So this is that part of the graphic that we've seen for several figures now, finally revealing itself. That is something called the local table. And the local table is its own data structure, and it's usually saved near the YARV instructions that we create as part of the um, compilation process. So we start with figure 215, and here we're going to look at that uh, that really simple block of instructions we had before we had do n puts n end, and we're going to look at just that part of the code. And when we look at the YARV instructions that correlate with that, we see put self, then we have get local, and then two, and then we have on the next line opt send simple, and then next to it we have this long thing that starts with call info bang mid colon puts dot dot dot. So there's a bunch of other stuff we don't see there. And then immediately on the right, we see the local table that corresponds to it. So in the local table that corresponds with the YARV instructions that I just read, we see in uh, straight brackets the number 2, and then right next to it we see N, and then in angle brackets the, uh, the word ARG with a capital A. And so that shows us that that local table is holding this idea of N ARG with the number 2, uh, and that correlates with the YARV instructions that we saw. And so just to add there, the reason why we're suddenly looking at local tables now is that previously um, we weren't dealing with any extra arguments or parameters. So if we look back at example 2, two the code that we're looking at is 10 dot times do n puts n end. And we know that in the, in the abstract syntax tree, we branch off when we get to the bit of the code that's do n puts n. And so when we get to dealing with that set of YARV instructions, because if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we discussed how each distinct like section of the code has its own snippet of YARV instructions, then I think anything to do with arguments or parameters is when the local table comes into play. And that's why when we were looking at the 10.times example before, we had table none, args none. Does that, does that sound like a correct assessment, Saron? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds exactly right. And yeah, and, and it actually wasn't until you brought that up and, and we talked it through that I realized that too, because I had in the in the book I wrote down, is this exclusive to the block parameter? And yeah. I think, yeah, it, it's it's not, but it is exclusive, it looks like, to things that just have arguments and things that need to um, need to be tracked and, and we need to, you know, keep an eye on. Um, so yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you for that. So if we look at a different example, if we look at figure 216, we have the code snippet def add to, and then in parentheses, we take in the arguments a comma b, and then we have sum equals a plus b end. So very simple, we're just adding two things, uh, and we're saving it in a local variable called sum. So if we look at the YARV instructions, first of all, I don't know about you, but I, I'm still surprised that there are so many YARV instructions. It's not that many, there's like five lines, but still, there's more... YARV instructions and more stuff in the local table than there are in the actual method, which I, I find very interesting. Uh, but in our YARV instructions, we have get local, and then next to that, the number four. On the next line, we have get local again, 
And then we have the number three. And then we have underneath that on the next line, opt plus. Then we have next to that angle bracket, call, info, bang, mid, colon, plus, dot, dot, dot. So we have a bunch of stuff that we don't see. And then underneath that, we have dupe, D-U-P. And then underneath that on the last line in our YARV instructions, we have set local. And that uh, corresponds to the number two. And then in our local table, right next to our YARV instructions, we see in straight brackets, the number two. And then next to that, sum. Next line, straight brackets, three. Next to that, B. And then that arg. And then underneath that, straight brackets four, and then we have A, and then ARG again. So this was one of the bits where um, I read it a couple of times before and it didn't click, but now I look at it and it looks really obvious because it's basically saying, hey, first thing, get the thing in the local table that's indexed by a four. Ah, that's the argument A. Get the thing in the local table that's indexed by three. Ah, that's the argument B. Add them. I don't know what the dupe bit is, but then the last... Uh, bit of Yav instruction says now set the thing in the local table that's linked to two ah sum and obviously what would have been left in the stack mm-hmm. would have been seven um so yes. it's just like oh it's so simple like at this point I'm like this is still this is simple at this point yes yeah and everything that's in the straight bracket in the local table is just it just acts as a legend and that's how um pat describes it as well he said you can look at this as just being like a legend to a map uh, and it just maps directly to the numbers in the yar of instructions and so so far we've only really dealt with one type of label in our local table which is the arg and we've only been dealing with arguments so far but we can also have other things like rest which is when we use our splat operator and we can take in an unnamed number of arguments. Um, And then we can have the label post, which is the argument that appears after the splat array. We can also have the label block and we can have the label opt equals I. And I think there is a few others that aren't mentioned here as well. One thing that I noticed is with this table, um, the order of the local table is in reverse of the so in yarm instructions we see four three two but then in our local table it's listed as two three four so the local table is like the the it's it's being called or the yarm instructions are calling what's in the local table backwards and i didn't understand why that was like why does that make sense so I guess my first answer to your question, I was going to say that, oh, it's a stack, so set local two when in first and then dupe, not plus. But no, we know it doesn't go in that way. Um, like, I just realized we know that, first of all, you add um, the receiver and then you add the, the, the thing calling the argument before the method itself. And so... I'm wondering whether there's this thing where the you get the YARV instructions and then they're trans like the assignment within the local table comes afterwards because if it was going if it was indeed get local four first then how does it know how many things there are to come to label that as four does that make Mm, sense yeah yep hmm that is a good question (laughs) because with the yard instructions we read from top to bottom don't we yeah and so you know the things that i don't understand i don't think we're explaining in the book are you know how how does it know that it's four three two and and also you know i i understand the relationship between yard instructions and local table with this idea of you know the local table acting as like a legend but 
the numbering makes me wonder, well, what came first and and when did it come? You know, mm. did it did we start with get local and then and and then the local table created the number four and like I'm just I'm not sure about how these two are created and what knows what, you know? Like is that what what is that first? four kind of thing what came first right exactly like what what determined what yeah and also just the fact that the um everything seems to start with and even in the um in figure 2.15 we're looking at the do puts end example um the local table started with number two and local table here again starts with number two instead of number one like why 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 is the numbering starting there why exactly (laughs) why not zero yeah um so i get like the big picture of this kind of but i don't really understand what's going on yeah i think i didn't really think about it too much but i guess i would just say that somehow the local table has a sense of how many things it needs to assign and it just does those so so for example in the yav instructions it's like well there's three things and we started two so therefore the last the first thing is going to be four i don't know is going to be indexed at four yeah but yeah you're right i just i get the high level thing of it and i'm i'm comfortable with that but if anyone has more mm-hmm. information on how this local table thing matches up and what happens first. Yeah. That'd be great. Pat, maybe you're listening. Tweet us. (laughs) Yes. Yes, Pat, if you you know, uh, please let us know. We would love to to understand this a little bit better. And there's something else under the the table that tells us a bit more about the different labels that are used in the local table. It says, um, understanding the information displayed by the local table can help you understand how Ruby's complex argument syntax works and how to take full advantage of the language. So I agreed with the first bit, which is I guess it can kind of help you understand how the complex argument syntax works. But I'm still not sure about how that now equips me to take better advantage of Ruby. And maybe that's something that's going to fall into yes. place later. But I'm kind of like, okay, it's cool. I know this, but I don't know how it's going to change how I write code or what extra things I can now do. That I, I highlighted that exact same paragraph and um, and I like circled the last <laughs> part that says take full advantage of the language. And I wrote, how so? <laughs> Are key arguments bad things? Um, because, yeah, like, and that's the thing too. When we talk about uh, things being complex, I, I'm not sure if that means we should avoid them. Or we should, like, is it just a matter of, you know, understanding them? And as long as we understand, like, hopefully that will, you know, take into effect somehow. Or is it that we should be actively trying to simplify things to make it easier for me? Like, I'm just not sure what the complexity of it means for me as a developer. So, yeah, I'm hoping we get to dig into that at some point, um, maybe in the next chapter or so. And so one of the next examples um 213 is looking at compiling optional arguments and how that relates to the local table. So in listing 213, we have a method that takes an optional argument. So that says def add to optional. There's two arguments, one A and the second one B equals five. So that's setting five as a default argument. And then we have sum equals A plus B end. Um, So, you know, if we provide a value for B, um, so we say puts add to optional and then in brackets two comma two, then we're going to get four back. But if we don't, then B will be five. So if we just said puts add to optional and then only put two in brackets, then we're going to get seven back. So the question is, how does Ruby handle this default value? Um, so now if we look at figure 218, um, we see the code snippet and underneath we see the the Yav instructions on the left and the local table on the right. So we have uh, the first line of Yav instructions says put object five. 
And the second line of the YAV instructions says, set local three. And now this is where I had one of my key revelations because I was wondering, um, wait, how does it work? Where's the five bit stored? And there's no five in the local table. And then yes. I realized- Yes, that was exactly mm -hmm. my reaction. And then I realized, oh, only set local and get local, grab things from the local table. Everything else is not to do with the local table. So when it says put object five, that's basically returning five to the compiler. And then the next instruction says set local, three and the three refers to the local the, the index in the local table which is the argument b and so so i realized ah so set local takes the next thing off the stack so the 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 receiver of the stack which is five and so it basically says mm -hmm. set whatever's at indexed at three the argument b to the value of five and i was like oh this makes so much sense and i realized that if we had called add to optional with two arguments then that put object will be whatever the, the the person had put in as that second argument so in that example because we actually are dealing with an argument it wouldn't be would it still be put object or would it be would it be like the set local again? Because now we actually like it's not it's no longer just the default object. It's actually um, a variable that we're passing in. Does that make sense? Like it would basically be another argument. Well, actually, it would probably just be like so for a, for example, it's just get local four and that would be a arg. So it would probably just say get local three. Right. Right. Sorry, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So just to go through that example in a bit more detail, the Yav instruction says put object five. And that five does not refer to something in the local table. It's referring to the default value. We've got set local three. So um, something in the local table. We've got get local four, get local three, and then opt plus. So we're basically we're taking four and three from the local table and then doing the plus operation. And then it's the dupe thing again, and then set local two. And now if we look at the local table, two refers to sum. So set local two is is um, setting the sum variable to whatever the result is of adding a and b, and then we've got free, which says b, and then in the angle brackets it says opt equals zero. So as we saw earlier, opt equals whatever is means that we've got a parameter defined with a default value, and that zero is the index into a table that stores all default values for all the arguments. And I'm guessing since b is the first and only um, thing that has a default value set that's why it's got zero and then four on the local table refers to a and then and it's a standard argument so one thing i'm wondering as i look at this is with the first lines of the yarv instruction saying put object five and then set local three does it does it just know that the set local three is referring to the put object just because it's underneath it or like what what determines that those two are talking to each other? Okay, so what's happening here is that put object five just returns five to the top of the stack. And so then we go down to the next instruction, which says set local. And it the value that it's applying that to is the, the one that's on the top of the stack. So it's similar to how um, later further down the stack, we have opt plus, and we know that it operates on the, the thing that's a, the two the That's two there are above it. Yeah. it. So I think it's just how the stack works. Right. So the next thing we're going to talk about is compiling keyword arguments. And so this is a relatively new thing. I think it started with Ruby 2.0, where before, if we wanted to have a default argument, we'd have 
uh, you know, b equals 5, which is what we had before. Uh, but with the new syntax, we can instead do b colon 5, which basically means the same thing. It means we have a default value of 5. And if we want to change that, then we have to explicitly um, say that b is going to be something different when we call that method. So in this example, in listening 214, we have def add to keyword, and then we have uh, parentheses a comma b colon 5, uh, and parentheses, and then we have sum equals a plus b end. So we're going to look at the YARV instructions and the local table for this. Now what's interesting is even though we did something very similar just you know just in the example before this where we had the the def add to optional and then we had a comma b equals five and that you know sum equals a plus b end like that's almost identical to the method that we're dealing with now. The YARV instructions are <laughs> twice as long, yeah. I think, right? Like it's significant. Let's actually count. I think the YARV instructions for Figure 218, the first, the simpler example, the add to optional method is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven lines in the YARV instructions. And then for our keyword, for our def add to keyword method, now it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. There's eighteen lines in our YARV instructions this time around. So oh, by the here, way, thirteen of those yeah. are just to implement the keyword argument B. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Good point. Good point. And so if we start right at the top, we start with get local three, then we have dupe, then we have put object colon B. And then we have opt send simple. And then we have that that long thing call info bang mid colon key question mark dot dot dot. Then we have branch unless 18. Next line dupe next line put object colon B. Next line, opt send simple with that long thing again. This time it reads call info bang mid colon delete dot dot dot. Next line, set local four. Next line, jump 22. Next line, put object five. Next line, set local four. Next line, pop. And all of that is in bold. So all that stuff is, uh, is the stuff related to the fact that it's a keyword argument. And then we have the things that hopefully are a little bit more familiar. We have get local five, get local four opt plus with the long thing that reads call info bang mid plus dot 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 then we have dupe and then finally we have set local two and then on the right of our yarv instructions we have our local table and this one's pretty short we have number two sum number three question mark which is new we haven't seen the question mark before then we have four b and then we have five a with our arg label yes and here pat actually says don't worry, I'll explain all of this in more detail in chapters three and four. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, this is going right. to be chapters. Okay. Um, but he points out two things. One is that what you said, the three question mark in the local table, because we've not seen that before. And also the call info mid bit, the one that ends in key question mark and the ones that ends in delete. Um, and he says, where, you know, where do we find such methods? And it is in the hash. And so what he uses this is to say is that, well, you can draw the conclusion that Ruby implements keyword arguments using an internal hidden hash object. And so um, all these additional um, YARV instructions are um, doing some clever things behind the scenes, such as checking this hash for the argument B. If it does find a value for B, then it uses it. Um, if it checks the hash and there's nothing for B, then it uses the default value of five. And and um, we're meant to solve the mystery and work out that 
um, three in the local table that question mark is this hidden hash object that's what's being referred to mm-hmm. um yeah i i love the way that one paragraph is written because it makes it sound like i could have figured that out <laughs> and there's no way like <laughs> like there's no way first of all i didn't even notice the you know key question mark and delete i just thought like okay it's because it's you know there, those are two words in a string of things that we can't even see like it you know that whole part ends in dot 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 so i'm thinking oh this could go on for paragraphs i don't know so it like it would, would never have stood out to me if it wasn't explicitly called out and the question mark i, I don't i don't even know what to make of that so i love how it reads like this shows evidence that they're done i'm like it does okay cool <laughs> I I believe it. Um, so at this point, this is where I went back to that line that we both had questions about where we talked about how understanding the complex argument syntax will help us take full advantage of the language. Because when I saw this and I saw that it took so many more lines just to use a keyword argument, and you know, even though the keyword argument is essentially the same as just our, our optional argument, uh, I thought, well, I feel like I shouldn't use the keyword argument. But then the fact that it was introduced in Ruby 2.0 makes me feel like, okay, well, there must be some advantage to this if it was you know, added on in a later version of Ruby. So this is one of those things where I hope we get into and unpack that line a little bit later in the, the following chapters. I really want to understand you know, if we, if we can get into and really appreciate the way the language works, how should it impact my coding and how how should it determine the decisions I make when I build stuff? That's an interesting um, point you raised there because, you know, when I've used keyword arguments before, it's to help. It's it's for a labeling purpose, right? You've got maybe th- mm-hmm. three or four arguments and you want to make it clear like this is length, this is width. And so it'll be interesting if we do get, you know, a couple of chapters further and we're starting to say, oh, are there performance implications or, you know, syntax implications that that would Mm -hmm. influence our decision as to whether we use um, syntax arguments or not. Right, right. So that is basically the conclusion of chapter two, where we focused on compiling. So, so far, we've learned that even though we think of Ruby as a dynamic scripting language, it does actually have a compiler. Uh, and that this compiler just runs automatically behind the scenes so we don't have to really think about it or worry about it, which makes it really, really easy for us as developers. And we got to really dig into Yarf instructions. So we talked about how Ruby translates your code from Ruby into something that is a much better fit for the Yarv virtual machine and how every single part of your code is translated into those Yarv instructions. And that concludes our section on compilation. So next week, we're going to start chapter three, where we'll talk about how Ruby takes those Yarv instructions and actually executes your code. So this week, the reading for me was, uh, I think I'm going to say, I think I'm going to say like a six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think I'm going to give it a six. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like there's still lots of gaps and i mean there's just i just don't think i would really have gotten as much out of this book if you know you and i hadn't sat down and talked it through and really gone through it together um and there were there were just a few too many questions for my liking so i think i think this week is probably a six for me what about you yeah i'm i'm on a six too i think a few weeks ago um if we'd recorded this i would might have said a five um but i think that i got so much joy from some of the revelations i made that it's, it's moves it up to a six mm-hmm, mm-hmm. cool 
So we want to know, what did you think of the reading this week? Tweet us your score at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio!